From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Being able to stop disease transmission and control infection is crucial in healthcare centers. To do this, physicians must be able to quickly and accurately identify pathogens. With a new process combining DNA sequencing and information from existing databases, Dr. Bill Hanage and his team are able to more quickly and accurately identify bacterial strains. This will allow healthcare providers to more rapidly determine the correct treatment for an infection, reducing transmission and speeding recovery. Dr. Bill Hanage is an associate professor at the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics and in the Department of Epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Hanage. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You're an epidemiologist who studies bacteria, vaccinations, and sequencing methods. What does this work entail? The short answer is that it's a little bit like doing CSI, but for infectious diseases. We're trying to track down the different strains of pathogens, mostly bacteria, which are causing disease, and identify them and figure out how closely they're related, and then whether or not some of them are more associated with particularly bad diseases or infections that are drug-resistant, for instance. And then once we've figured out what particular bacteria or pathogens we have in a sample, we try to figure out how they've evolved, how they've got there, and what we can do in order to stop their future transmission. How do epidemiologists typically use sequence typing to identify strains in a bacteria sample? Every living thing has nucleic acid, you know, most things which are not well, things which are not viruses have DNA, and we can characterize things on the basis of the DNA, the sequence that they have. So we all have genomes which are made up of DNA, so do bacteria. And we can sequence that DNA, and more similar bacteria will have more similar sequences. In some cases, not often, but in some cases, we'll find two cases which are absolutely identical, and then you can say that they are very, very closely related. So for instance, if uh, if you were infected with something, mm-hmm. and I sequenced it, and I found that it was identical to something which somebody else had, I might start to hypothesize that maybe you had transmitted it to them, or they had transmitted it to you. And how do you usually use that process to identify strains in bacteria sample? You talked about it a bit, but... Sure. So a clinical microbiologist, and this is changing, but I'm going to give you the way that people would have done this like a few decades ago, because... That's still the way that most people think. Typically, somebody would take a sample, they would try and grow it on one of those petri dishes, and you know they'll pick a single colony, and then they will do gram stains on it to try and figure out whether it's gram positive or gram negative, and then they will speciate it, and then they will do maybe drug susceptibility testing, and then some of those, some of those would go on and be sequenced. And there are multiple technologies which are going around for sequencing that's got so much cheaper. I mean, you know, when I when I started out in this business, it would cost you know it would cost literally millions mm-hmm. to get a genome done. 
Whereas now I can do it in my lab for about 70 bucks. So it's remarkably, it's so, so, so much cheaper than it was. And what's the process you use now? Well, things have been changing quite a lot. Um, the drawbacks of the old uh, process, just to enumerate them, is that it takes time, um, typically you know, a few days at least, probably as much as a week. People talk about getting data in near real time. Um, it requires access to a relatively big machine, which you know, is most commonly found in academic centers or perhaps in state health labs or things like that. Um, and so it's good, it's cool, but it's not ideal. Now, what we have been recently doing is using this new technology, which is made by a company called Oxford Nanopore, which produces a sequencer which is about the size of a smartphone or a stapler or something like that. It's really small. It runs off a USB connection, um, so it can be attached to a laptop, and it produces data in uh, real time. So you're, it works by pulling a strand of DNA through a little pore uh, on a membrane across which you've got, like a, there's an ionic gradient, so you've got more protons on one side than the other. And the protons, as they flow through the pore, create a current. But when the DNA is being pulled through the pore, it gets in the way. And so the current varies depending on what is actually in the pore. And by using that, you, it, they are able to reconstruct the DNA sequence. And this can sequence chunks of DNA. Well, my lab manages to do 100,000 base pairs plus um, in a single, like, being pulled through the pore. And that's pretty amazing. That's phenomenal. And, you know, we have not done this, but other people have used it to uh, do sequencing in remarkable locations, like a, uh, an old postdoc of mine once used it to sequence Ebola in mm. the bush in Guinea during the... West Africa and the Ebola outbreak. It's been used to study Zika. It hasn't been used so much yet to study bacteria. And there are various reasons for that which we can get into. Now, the problem with this technology is that while I think it's kind of remarkable, and I think that the people it deserves a lot of applause, it has an extraordinarily high error rate. Mm. So... Remember when I was saying that I was trying to figure out if something was, if you were transmitting or being transmitted to by somebody else, you'd find identical sequence. Well, if, in order for that to be true, you don't want there to be any mistakes. You know, <laughs> you want to have a pretty, you, you want to be pretty sure that you're accurate. Actually, not just pretty sure, you want to be absolutely sure that you're accurate. <laughs> now, these reads, as they are pulled through, roughly, it varies depending on uh, the run and how well the DNA has been prepared and various issues like that. But it has an error rate of about 1 in 10. So those base pairs are being mm -hmm. pulled through the pore. You know, you know your DNA is A, C, G, T, C, C, T, T, whatever. One, of the, one in 10 of those is going to be wrong on average. Mm -hmm. Now, you might think that that is a... That's sort of like... That's a pretty bad thing. <laughs> but actually... If you have time, it's okay, because you can just 
it's not the only time you're going to sequence that region of the genome. You're going to keep pulling different things through the pore. You'll get more and more and more of these things, which are called reads. Each of mm -hmm. these things, each single strand of DNA is called a read. Mm. And once you get a bunch of different reads covering that region of the genome, you're going to get the right answer because, in fact, most of the reads are going to have the right thing at that site. And so once you pile up all of those things, you get accurate signal. However, that takes time. And as a result of that, we start losing the great advantage that we had in the first place, which was that it was quick and it was real time. How has your team proposed to change this process? We have been trying to find a way to sort of lean in to the error rate. We're not trying to get rid of it. We're accepting that it's there. Um, we are trying to find a way that we can work with those data without wanting to wait for the technology to get better. And what we have done is come up with a method that combines this new newish technology with the older technologies and is, enables us to identify the strain that is present within a sample in a matter of minutes. And when I say the strain, I should explain what I mean. Mm -hmm. because, you know, And we're talking bacteria here, not viruses. Bacteria have much bigger genomes than viruses. Uh, Almost all bacterial pathogens, the things that you hear about like MRSA, um, you may have heard mm -hmm. of Klebsiella pneumoniae, um, E. coli, almost all of the dangerous ones have specific strains which are like lineages, closely related things mm. that are more dangerous than others. They're more likely to cause disease, they're more likely to be drug resistant. And we want to be able to identify those. Now, we have a big advantage here, which is that People have been sequencing using these old methods for decades. And mm -hmm. so there are big, big databases. I mean, huge, there, there are databases of thousands of genomes, in many cases, which are available and have been sequenced already and have got lots of really good data. We, we know what the sequence is. There's no uncertainty about the, um, about the error rate here. Mm -hmm. And what we are going to try and do is match our sample to those. So we know what we're looking for. We're looking for specific strains. Now, the trick that we've used is based on something which is called uh, KMAs. And you can quite reasonably say, what, what's a KMA? <laughs> um, a KMA is just a chunk of DNA of length K. So when we have these genomes, and genomes can be you know quite large, we're talking about two and a half, five million base pairs. That's five million letters of DNA, mm -hmm. two and a half or five million. We break them all up into little chunks. And when I say little, I mean 18 base pairs long. So rather than having a single five million base pair word, we have lots and lots of 18 base pair words. Mm. And taken together, they are all of the base pair words that could make up that genome. So, okay, that's, that's cool. Why did we do that? Mm -hmm. The reason we did that is because when the pore, well, when the read is being pulled through the pore and it's got that error rate, we can, as the sequence is generated, match 
that to our database and look for something which is exactly the same. We're not looking for something which is a bit different. You know, that, that takes time. That's computationally mm -hmm. difficult. We're just looking to say, is there something in there which is exactly the same, which is computationally a pretty quick thing to do. And the reason why we've taken it to be 18 is because it's a really, it's the sweet spot in terms of length. Imagine mm -hmm. if instead of 18, we had done it for, we'd set it to being around 30, which is what a lot of uh, classifiers based on this approach do at the moment. Mm -hmm. There would be very rare to get a stretch of 30 base pairs without an error. It's a, I should point out that these errors are random. It's not like you know, every, every 10 definitely has an error. It's like sometimes you'll get 10 or 20 even without an error, which, you mm. know, which is good. And that's why we use the 18, because the 18 base pair length is just the right length to be able to sometimes get, when we're lucky, you get a stretch of 18 base pairs that has no error in it. And then that finds an exact match within our database. Now, you might ask what happens when you get an error. Now, the errors are not quite random, but you know, to a first approximation, they're pretty random. They, they tend to happen in certain regions of the genome more than others. But when an error does occur, it's going to produce a different KMA. Now, in the first place, it's unlikely that that KMA already exists in the database because it's just been generated by mistake. And we've got a database of actually existing variation, not a database of mistakes. Mm -hmm. And in the second place, even if it did match to the wrong thing, it would be very unlikely that you would then get another match to another wrong thing over and over again. And I can also say that we've not just argued this, we've tested it. We had a, uh, as part of previous work that I did, which I actually think I've talked to you about before, we studied um, the response of the population of this bug called Streptococcus pneumoniae in Massachusetts to vaccination. So we have, we, we, you know, we're lucky. We're, we, we're already sitting on a database of several hundred pneumococcal genomes, which we'd collected. So we used this to make a nice KMA database. And then we started saying, okay, first thing we're going to do is we're going to take something which is actually in the database and see if we can identify what it is using this method. And if we can't, then it's like, okay, go home. But we could. We managed to take a two, um, we've taken two different isolates, one of them that was highly drug resistant, one of which was completely drug susceptible. Mm -hmm. And we tried using this method to try and sort of, I was going to say pin the tail on the donkey. You remember <laughs> that? Like it's, it's, like, you know, it's like pin the pin the sequence on the population in order mm -hmm. to figure out what part, which strain it came from. And the it came up with the right answer mm -hmm. in both cases uh, within five minutes of sequence. So that, we think, is pretty exciting. Mm. What are the applications of this new process you're using with the new and old? So the first thing to point out, obviously, is that this being as portable as it is means that you'd be able to use it in places which are you know, perhaps resource poor or even in just say, rural hospitals that do not have access to all the sequences that perhaps a university does or something like that. Um, what we have started thinking about is that if you can tell what strain is in a sample early on, you can. it's really, really useful information for a doctor to know. 
Now, at the moment, and I should say by the way that this, the way I'm going to phrase this is actually borrowed from a student of mine who um, wrote a thing about it a few years ago and I found it extremely compelling. There are these different treatment windows uh, which a doctor experiences when they approach a patient. Mm-hmm. And the first thing they do is they look at the patient and they think, ooh, it looks like you're ill. Um, I think it's probably a bacterial infection. Before I'm going to do anything else, I'm going to start treating you. Because if there's any delay to treatment, that can mm-hmm. usually be correlated with a pretty bad outcome. And in some cases, of like blood infections, it's really, really severe. So they start immediately. And they think of a drug, which they reckon is probably going to work based on previous experiences within their healthcare setting and you know where, what patients have responded well to who have looked a bit like this patient. They then take a sample and the first window is the gram stain. Now whether or not the bug is actually bacterial, you know, if it's a virus, remember antibiotics don't work on viruses. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a bacteria, it'll be gram positive or gram negative. Now, gram-negative bacteria are actually resistant just intrinsically to quite a lot of drugs. So that might alter the prescription. Then, you speciate. And when you speciate, again, that alters your expectation of what it might be drug, what, what drugs it might be resistant or susceptible to. Um, and so that might change the prescription. And then eventually you'll get the drug susceptibility profile, and that will be like the definitive thing that you can use. And then maybe at the moment after that, you might take a subset of them and go sequence them. Now, what we are doing is we're sliding those windows, or we're proposing we slide those windows so that you take the sample, purify DNA from it, and you you study that. And in that, you get the gram stain and you get the speciation. And because you're able to identify the strains within the species, you get a pretty good idea of what it might be susceptible to. Hmm. I mean, essentially, as I said, the doctor approaching the patient is going to be thinking, oh, has this person got the same thing that I saw last week or last month? This would enable them to say, yes, it is. It's exactly the mm-hmm. same as the thing you saw last week or last month. And then you can use that information in determining how you're going to treat. So I just said a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, and you know, alert listeners will have noticed that I've sort of uh, brushed over one part of the process. And the, the, the part I'm talking about is that you know, when you take a sample, don't you have to grow it? Don't you have to get the DNA out of it? Doesn't that take time? And the answer is yes, it does. I mean, it's still quicker than waiting to put it on the sort of sequences that people mostly use these days. But what we would really like to be able to do is to do something directly from a sample. Mm. And we have data suggesting that we can. So we got a collaboration with um, a guy called uh, Justin O'Grady, who's at the Quadrum Institute in the UK. Mm. And he very kindly shared a metagenome, Mm. which, what's a metagenome? A metagenome is when you isolate all the DNA in a sample. So they had um, a sputum sample and it was a sputum sample from a case of uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia. And they had been using it to try and identify you know, similar methods to identify the species quickly. And they had already, already developed this method, which was an incredibly cool method for uh, depleting human DNA, because you know, this is an important thing. You know, if you're going to be sequencing all the DNA in the sample, you want to enrich it for what might be dangerous, because mm. anything that comes from you is going to have a fair amount of human DNA in it. 
And you don't want to be wasting your time sequencing human DNA. Mm -hmm. Human DNA is boring. Actually, no, I don't mean boring. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, sorry. Human <laughs> DNA is, of course, interesting and important if you're trying to sequence human DNA, but we're interested in the pathogen DNA. So they've come up with a way of depleting the human DNA and then putting it on one of these devices. And when we took the data they had, we were able to, you know, the things that come off are time-stamped so we can see how long it takes for us to be able to mm. pin the tail on the donkey, figure out what it is. And again, it took us about five minutes before we identified that it contained a known clone, um, and which was typically uh, resistant to the antibiotics, erythromycin, clindamycin, mm. tetracycline, and so on. And when I said, so Justin, what, what, what was it? It turned out that we were right. Mm. In fact, we, we knew more about it than they did. We could tell the serotype because of, the, uh, because of what it was associated with. So, this method can work. I don't want to say always will work because I don't want to get ahead of myself. Mm -hmm. Has the potential to work with samples that don't even require incubation. They don't. You can take a take a sputum sample, isolate all the DNA, do what you can to get rid of the human DNA, and then just pop it on this device. And that I think is has the potential to really make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, you just talked about the applications for the new process. What do you hope to see that comes out of your research personally? Uh, I was going to say, surely I want to change the world. <laughs> uh, but what, what I, my ambitions are in some ways are slightly less than that. I really think that this method has a huge amount of wide application, not only to identify strains and change the way that people think about uh, approaching these problems, but also to determine transmission. Because if you, like I said, two cases of disease which are from a short transmission chain are going to be very closely related. You know, um, that's like just by definition. And as a result, they will match to the same thing in your database. And things which are not related will be well, things which are not related will tend to match to different things. So you can use this again as a very quick way. If you're um, working in a case, for instance, I was talking to some collaborators um, recently who said they had a case of potential group A streptococcus transmission. Would this have been able to detect it? And I was like, well, yeah, because it would match to the same thing. Group A streptococcus is pretty diverse. You'd be able to identify that this was a these were two very closely related cases. Um, so for this to be the case, there would need to be a bit of a shift in the way that people think about approaching these problems. The One of the things which is very cool, I alluded to it already, but I'm going to reiterate it, is that there are large databases for a lot of things already. And I'm not, I cannot emphasize this enough. Everything I have just said depends upon the existence of a good database. So we know what we are looking for. Okay, And I think that there's a huge role for public health agencies in developing such databases. They can, um, CDC already does a fantastic job sequencing a lot of different pathogens. If they or state health labs or indeed perhaps local labs, a local hospital would readily be able to generate a database of its local threats and we could match to them. Once we do that, then we can add 
our approach at the start so that we can start informing decisions more quickly. And I should point out, I, nobody, I, nobody is proposing that we sequence these things and then say, all right, job done. <laughs> we, you know, we carry on going through, and if it turns out that we have, you know, that, the, uh, that we've got something which we have never seen before, a new drug-resistant clone, something which has not been in our sample before this one, we can add it. And we are going to be no worse off than we would have been had we not done that. We're going to continue the process of drug susceptibility testing and so on, and if just to confirm that we were right. And if it turns out we were wrong, we can use it to update the database. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Hanage. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure being here. Next time on Think Research, we introduce Community Engage, a series of episodes highlighting work funded by Harvard Catalyst to reduce health disparities in LGBTQ communities. In the first episode, Sari Reisner of Boston Children's Hospital will discuss his Harvard Catalyst pilot grant alongside the community advocates on his project. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. <laughs> <laughs>